Please turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We'll be reading this morning where we left off. Verse 16 was where we concluded last week. And we'll be focusing our attention this morning on verses 17 through 20. So let's read the words of the greatest teacher to ever walk the face of the earth. The Son of God Himself. Let's read His words in verses 17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota nor a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. For whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. A few months ago, my wife and I made the decision to remove a wall in our home. The wall divided our kitchen dining room from the living room. And the project would have been much simpler had the wall not been a load-bearing wall. Since this was the case, several beams had to be stretched across the ceiling so the weight would be correctly and properly distributed. Why do I tell you that? What's the point? All walls have a function. Sometimes they're just decorative. But some walls have an even greater function than others. And the same could be said of certain texts in the Bible. All texts of Scripture have a function in God's revealed truth. We know that. We're not taking anything away from their authority. But there are certain texts that seem to be those load-bearing texts. They seem to carry a lot of weight. Such is the case with Matthew 5, 17 through 20. So as I began studying this text, I consulted a commentary by a man who's arguably one of the foremost evangelical biblical scholars alive today. And here's how he started his commentary on these verses. Matthew 5, 17 through 20 are among the most difficult verses in all the Bible. Great. Fantastic. So I began to work up an email to to Dan saying, you know, I just don't think this is a good move, you know, but then I remembered he's gone this week. He's not even here. And not only is he not here, Rocky, John, Paul, just taking a tab of the pressure off. And if I stumble too badly, I suppose I can always blame it on the fact that I'm sleep deprived after having a newborn baby in the house. But all kidding aside, I'm scared to death but thrilled to look at this passage this morning. It's a tremendous passage before us, and the truth is that God intends for each one of us to hear and to read the words of Jesus, and for these words to actually alter the course of our lives. Regardless of your age here this morning, it is God's intent that your life would change as a result of the power that is in these words. So to this end, let's pause before we go any further and ask the Lord and specifically the Spirit of God to be our teacher this morning. Let's pray. Father, this is a marvelous sermon that you preached. It's marvelously put together. We may not have every word that you said that one day on that mount, Lord, but we have all that you intended us to know. And Lord, as we start this discovery, walking through this amazing passage, Matthew 5 through 7, and as we continue in the months to come, our prayer is simple. Teach us, Father. Teach us. You're the master. You're the one with unparalleled authority. And so... We confess how poor we are, Lord, 
at bowing the knee to what you say. We go about our lives acting as if we're our own lords, making determinations about how we'll spend our time and what we'll do based on how we feel. But Father, help us to see that bowing the knee to all that you are for us is how life was intended to be lived. Lord, we're reminded of of Luke chapter 24 and that amazing story of how you met those two disciples on the road to Emmaus and they didn't even know who you were. And and there you asked them what they were talking about and, and they couldn't believe that you seemed to act ignorant. And And there, Lord, you explained that it was the slowness of their hearts to believe all that the prophets had spoken concerning how the Messiah would suffer and die. That's us, Lord. We have slow hearts to believe all that You've laid forth for us in the Scriptures. And Lord, You kindly began to blow their minds with how beginning with the words of Moses and continuing throughout the prophets and all the Scriptures, how You interpreted them and pointed them kindly to all the things concerning Yourself. And so, Lord... We know that there is so much more that we won't see here this morning, but that should only be fuel to the fire to keep us hungering and thirsting after your word. Would you teach us this morning and give us, all of us, corporately here this morning, a softness of heart, an openness and an eagerness to hear from you. This really is sacred time before us. So we ask that you'd be glorified as we walk through these verses together. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So as we set the stage this morning, let's ask the question, is there any connective tissue, you might say? Is there any connections here that exist between Jesus' descriptions of the lives that His disciples ought to live and the Beatitudes that we looked at a few weeks ago, and then the life that they are to live as salt and light, these first 16 verses? Is there any flow of thought that carries us naturally into how Jesus understands His own role and relationship to the Old Testament? How do we get there from what we've just seen? Well, as citizens of God's kingdom, as we think back now over the Beatitudes, perhaps you want to just scan through them in your copy of the Scriptures. As citizens of God's kingdom who have been divinely blessed, they are marked by a unique mindset, worldview. A certain code of ethics now characterizes their lives. Specifically, these people demonstrate a certain poverty of spirit. They oftentimes mourn. They cry a lot in this life, knowing that infinite, eternal comfort awaits them. They are meek. They do not hunger and thirst after sin, but rather after righteousness. For that is what deeply satisfies their souls. They show mercy to their neighbor because they're continually aware of how much they themselves have received mercy and how they long to continually receive God's mercy. They have pure hearts because seeing God is all important to them. Seeing Him. They make peace because being named among God's kids is extremely important to them. They look pain and opposition in the face and rejoice because they've done the math and they've concluded that temporal discomfort in this life is worth it when compared to the great reward they'll enjoy for eternity. And now having come to these conclusions, they surrender their old desires for self-promotion and individual kingdom building in favor of signing up for what life ought to look like. A life wholly given to promoting God's glory and the message of Christ to the very ends of the earth. And now, as a citizen of God's kingdom, 
with this kind of trajectory in life, knowing how to orient oneself to God's revealed truth is of paramount importance. Even more specifically, knowing how to reconcile the Messiah that was standing before them with the thousands of years of promises that God had made to his people. What could be more significant? So in verses 17 through 18, we begin by looking at Christ's relationship to the law. Christ's relationship to the law. We read in verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So it seems likely that some of Jesus' followers were already marking him out as a revolutionary, one who would upend all that came before in favor of an entirely brand new order of how things ought to be. Isn't this true? Whenever there's a change in in leadership in anything, there's always a reshuffling and a reposturing of people. Oh, what's this going to be like? What's this going to look like? We got a new freshman class, new recruits, new, new hopes, new anticipations. Certainly this is true of Jesus. People are talking behind his back. They have plans for him. Perhaps he's an inventor of a brand new form of religion. This is exciting. Their itching ears probably longed for novelty. But instead, Jesus reaffirms the enduring gift of the Old Testament scriptures. So what does it mean that when Jesus states that he has not come to abolish the law or the prophets. Well, the word abolish here normally is used with the tearing down of buildings, kind of a deconstruction, demolishing sort of, of language. And the idea here, though, has the idea of making invalid or putting an end to something that's currently in force. So furthermore, the law or the prophets, that phrase there would have been a standard shorthand reduced way of referring to all the Old Testament scriptures. So what Jesus is effectively saying is that his arrival should not cause us to conclude that all scriptures given to Israel prior to his coming are now null and void, pointless. By no means, he says. He continues, I have not come to abolish to make invalid, to stop the enduring gift of the Scriptures. No, no, no. I've come to, what's that word? Fulfill them. This word fulfill is a quite debated term because it's load-bearing, carries a lot of weight. What exactly does Jesus have in mind when he says here that he fulfills all the Old Testament Scriptures? Or we might ask, what is Matthew the writer of this gospel in particular want for us to conclude as we see this fulfillment language. And that's what I'd like to press into for just a moment. This is a tough, tough concept for us to think about. So it's naturally going to be very limiting for us this morning. So what I want to camp out in first is what Matthew, specifically, in particular, has in mind when he talks about fulfillment. So writing to a primarily Jewish audience, Matthew repeatedly quotes the Old Testament by use of the phrase, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet such and such. Did you see that exact phrase was actually used in Matthew 21 in the scripture reading this morning as well? It's one of Matthew's favorite phrases, and he doesn't use it just carelessly. It's not just a filler phrase. He is specifically driving towards a certain point. So turn back with me to the very beginning of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1. And as I draw your attention, I'd encourage you to kind of scan through and read the text. So how does the very beginning of Matthew's gospel begin? As you see there, Matthew begins by drawing immediate attention to the fact that Jesus is indeed an Israelite. He's a son of Abraham and a son of David. Also, Jesus' earthly life parallels many of the defining experiences that characterize Israel as a nation in many significant ways. 
Now think about this for a moment. Jesus' miraculous birth that Matthew spends a lot of time focused on reminds us of another miraculous birth of Isaac who stood as a representative of the nation of Israel and that unbelievable gift that it was to Abraham and Sarah. After Jesus' birth, King Herod seeks to kill him much like Pharaoh's attempt to kill the baby Moses. In chapter 2, verse 15, Jesus' journey to and from Egypt prompts Matthew to write, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And what do we read there in verse 15? Out of Egypt I called my son. A direct quotation from Hosea 11, verse 1. And even though Hosea was speaking of God's past deliverance of Israel from Egyptian slavery, Matthew here recognizes that Jesus is fulfilling Hosea's words by bringing to pass a far greater day of deliverance. The beginning of chapter 3. In Matthew chapter 3, he writes of John the Baptist, who fulfilled Isaiah the prophet's words concerning a voice crying in the desert, preparing the way of the Lord. So John's baptizing of his disciples, which certainly was reminiscent of the cleansing rites in which Moses would have prescribed in the law, was brought to a halt when the one whose sandal straps he was unworthy to untie asked him to baptize him. John knew this was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Why must he be baptized? a signifying of the acknowledgement and the washing away of sin. John protests, admitting Jesus to his worthiness to baptize him. we got things mixed up here. But then listen to how Matthew underscores Jesus' response in 3.15 here. Let it be so now, he's speaking to John, for thus it is fitting for us to, and there's our word, Fulfill, same Greek word that appears six times in these opening few chapters. Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So as the sinless Lamb of God, Jesus was identifying himself with the sinful position of his fellow Israelites by becoming like them in his own baptism. And as one man writes, hence for Jesus to be baptized was not improper, but supremely proper. It is fulfillment. God's plan is that Jesus should in his sinfulness be identified with sinful Israel. In this way, all righteousness is fulfilled. We see in chapter 4 of Matthew, in the first 11 verses, Following Jesus' baptism, Matthew immediately draws our attention to Jesus' temptation in the wilderness where he quotes Moses' words in Deuteronomy three different times, demonstrating that where Israel turned away from God in the wilderness, God's Son held fast to the life-giving Word of God. Where Israel failed time and time again, God's Son triumphed. In 4.14 of Matthew, once more, after Jesus hears of John the Baptist's imprisonment, he withdraws into Galilee and went to live by the Sea of Capernaum once again so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. So the end of chapter 4 continues to develop all the various things that Jesus did in his life, how he proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom and how he healed every disease and every affliction among the people. So now, let's return to the question we asked a few minutes ago. What does Matthew intend for us to see in terms of fulfillment in verse 17? Well, I believe Matthew spent all of chapters 1 through 4 preparing us for this. We're supposed to be chomping at the bit to know more about this unrivaled, unparalleled, totally unique, miraculously born child who has by his actions 
fulfilled all righteousness. This is amazing. We should be dying to know more about what this Messiah has to say, and particularly how he understands his own authority in relation to all the authority that has come beforehand, the law and the prophets. So at the beginning of chapter 5, a contrast should be noted. The emphasis shifts from how Jesus' actions fulfill all righteousness to now how Jesus' teaching, specific teaching, fulfills all the law and the prophets as he expounds the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 through 7. Does this make sense? Are we starting to put it all together here? We must remember how striking Jesus' words would have been to the hearers that day. Could there be anything more inflammatory and blasphemous than for someone, a person, to claim that all the law and the scriptures culminate, find their, their ending point in them? For them to say that, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob culminates in me, in, a, in flesh and blood, in a person? Wow. You can't say something more incendiary. And it's the height of blasphemy if it's not true. But it is true. To summarize thus far, I think the best answer for how to rightly comprehend verse 17 is in this way. Jesus does not intend to make the Old Testament invalid but rather he intends to validate it by bringing it to its completed end. In other words, he's not simply showing that he himself is the missing puzzle piece that just allows the, the picture to finally be complete. Nor is he a ragbag collection of miscellaneous prophecies here and there that we might find throughout the Old Testament. And in that sense, he fulfills it's even broader than that. He is in himself, as the Son of God, the climactic end, the resolution of every biblical theme and the ultimate fulfillment such that he speaks with authority over all that has come before and all that will come to pass. As D.A. Carson writes, the Old Testament's real and abiding authority must be understood through the person and teaching of him to whom it points and who so richly fulfills it. So we continue reading in verse 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So the language here is sweeping and emphatic, but it's still very clear. Heaven and earth will pass away, meaning as long as this present world exists or until the end of the age, the Old Testament will have an enduring purpose, an enduring authority. And iota, now what is this? Well, to help us out here a little bit, it's the smallest, it's the smallest letter in the top left corner here. Letter in the Hebrew alphabet. This is the letter that begins God's name, Yahweh. The dot is likely, uh, the, the old King James Version would refer to this as a jot and a tittle. And uh, we read here in our text, it says an iota uh, or a dot. Now, so a yud here in, in Hebrew is the smallest letter, very, very small. And what could be the least stroke of the pen could be the difference between this he letter here and the het letter here. See how similar these are? Very, very similar, except for that small little, what, what really could be a dot of ink could give you one letter versus another. So Jesus is saying to that small of a differentiation, 
the law continues. The law has an enduring, abiding, wonderful effect upon the people of God. But be clear on this. It is no longer the ending point in and of itself because, as the writer of Hebrews will say in chapter 3, there is one who has more glory than Moses, who is the supreme lawgiver. He stands above it and completes it in himself. The smallest letter even has relevance for us today. Can there be a more robust demonstrative way of upholding the ongoing value of the Old Testament. But this was our Lord's opinion of the Old Testament. Now, there are a lot of questions that come to mind on this topic, right? With passages like this one before us, there's likely a handful or more that are just streaming into your mind right now. Let me address just a couple of them for a moment. We read in Luke 16, and you could turn there if you like, Luke 16, 16 and 17, we see a possible problem. Luke 16, 16 and 17. Doesn't Jesus state here, the law and the prophets were until John? That's what it says. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. So how does Jesus confirm the ongoing value of the Old Testament in the Sermon on the Mount while simultaneously saying it functioned for a time up to the ministry of John the Baptist? Now turn to Ephesians chapter 2. And we'll read verses 14 and 15 together. This is where it gets a bit tricky. Because someone could say, Jesus came to abolish the law. And you could say, no, he didn't. And you could say, yes, he did. And you'd both be right. It's a little bit tricky. We read in Ephesians 2, 14 through 15. For he himself, meaning Jesus is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law and commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So how can Jesus say he didn't come to abolish the law and Paul say that Jesus did abolish the law? Well, that's just the Bible, full of contradictions. We can never figure it out, right? Well, no, I don't think so. Returning to Luke 16 for a moment. The law and the prophets were indeed for a time. Up through the ministry of John, revealing God's character, supervising God's people, and revealing sin. However, this does not mean that the law and the prophets are now completely, in every sense, abolished. The book of Hebrews makes clear that what the Old Testament in its entirety foreshadowed and prefigured through signs and symbols has now become reality in flesh and blood. All that they pointed to and were whetting our appetite for, the main course is here. There's no need for appetizers when the main course is before you. Jesus was not a religious inventor par excellence, arriving on the scene to market some new brand and to give people something they'd never heard before. Rather, he honored the Old Testament while still embodying its fulfillment. Regarding Paul's words in Ephesians 2, the law and commandments expressed in ordinances that he says certainly have served their function in redemptive history. The New Testament repeatedly teaches that as believers under the New Covenant, we're no longer bound to adhere the same ceremonial and ritual regulations as God's people in the Old Testament. And the reason for this change can be accounted for in Matthew chapter 5, our text this morning. Because Jesus, 
who was counted worthy of more honor than Moses. And that's Matthew's fixation on on the books of Moses and the teaching of Moses and comparing in those first four chapters why Jesus supersedes and is greater than Israel and even Moses. This one stands as the supreme lawgiver. Once again, it's a matter of authority. So, in fact, the entire Sermon on the Mount is bookended with this reminder that Jesus has all authority. Chapter 7 ends with this description. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So the New Testament makes clear in the book of Romans, in the book of Galatians, and in the book of Acts and elsewhere that Christ is the culmination of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. The law was never given as a means of salvation for God's people. The law, as one writer illustrates, while the law implied salvation through keeping it, implied that it was possible, it made no provision that any person would do it and keep it. And be saved by it, save God's son. So it would be as if in a couple of years I took my three-week-old son, Jude, and I took him down to the park, and he's just a few years old, I don't know, two, three, four years old. And I said, Jude, we don't have to practice basketball anymore as soon as you make a hundred free throws in a row. Come on, here we go. One after another, he can't even hit the rim. He can't even hardly pick up the ball. I'm like, well, it's clear. I mean, we're done practicing basketball. No more need. As soon as you make a hundred of them. I mean, there is no expectation that this is going to happen. That doesn't necessarily mean that my stipulation is evil or my expectation is, sure, it's a little harsh, it's a little intense, especially if I'm punishing him, you know, for for not doing this. Um, But the point being, The capacity to do this was never fully laid out in the expectation. There was always a forward-pressing momentum that there must be a substitute. There must be someone who can accomplish this. This is the reason that we do not believe circumcision still marks out God's people in the same way it did under the Old Covenant. And the reason we are not sacrificing animals this morning and living under the ceremonial regulations of the law. It's not that the law has been abolished, but that the chief lawgiver, Christ himself, fulfills every bit of it. He does this in himself, thus rendering these signs and these pointers as no longer necessary for the people of God. And as Galatians 6 and 1 Corinthians 9 tell us, we are now fulfillers of the law of Christ. So verses 17 and 18 express Jesus' self-understanding of how he fulfills the law. But let's continue to examine verses 19 through 20, which speak of the disciples' relationship to the law. So the Christian's response to the law. We read in verses 19 and 20. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. To relax On a commandment is not necessarily a common way of speaking, uh, but the meaning's obvious. Whoever breaks, ignores, annuls, sets aside as insignificant, even the smallest and most seemingly insignificant commandment, and then encourages others to follow suit, least in the kingdom. On the contrary, whoever obeys, who does, who carries out these commandments, and teaches others to follow suit, greatest in the kingdom. So although this expression is used elsewhere in the Gospels, 
it's still somewhat unclear what is meant by being least in the kingdom. It seems to make most sense, verse 19 that is, as a parallel expression to the fate of the person in verse 20, who will never enter the kingdom unless they have righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. So what is also clear, though, is that Jesus is not merely concerned about what you believe all by yourself. But he is just as concerned about how his disciples make disciples. Will his disciples make disciples that have a small opinion and a low regard for God's most holy word? Will they, as his disciples, lead others to treat Jesus' teaching as the supreme guide for all of life? Or will they see them as uh, casual words to be followed if and when convenient? Pretty sobering words. Jesus says in verse 20 now, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So this would have hit all the listeners as a, wait, what? what? Say that again? Are you serious? The average listener would be thinking, but, but I don't know anyone. I can't even conceive of a person that is more fastidious about keeping the law of God than those people, scribes and Pharisees. I mean, this would have been shocking And then immediately after it was shocking, it would have been depressing, demoralizing, because you'd look right back at yourself and say, well, what hope do I have? Oh, this is discouraging. Because let's take a little window into the, let's peek into the lives of the Pharisees for a moment. Who were they? Well, Pharisee, even the word itself meant separated one. They were separatists. And that was their mantra that they were proud of. But... They, they had an extreme desire to please God through their piety. They were zealous for the duties of the law. They were the average Joes that, unlike the Sadducees, who were more the aristocrats, the, the, the priestly class, these were just the average Jews that really, really cared about keeping the law of Moses. They wanted to bring the law to bear on all of life for everybody, not just the elites. They stood up to Rome's autocratic state, so they knew what it meant to face opposition and persecution. They'd gone through a lot to stand up for what they believe. That's commendable, you could say. They were committed to holding the tide against worldliness in the day, to calling sin for what it was. They believed in the infallibility and the inerrancy of the Holy Scriptures. They they were people not too unlike you and me. You might actually enjoy a meal with some of these people. But, on the whole, what was the kind of righteousness Jesus has in mind here? Is He saying, You just need to outwork the competition, okay? You need to make their good works look like child's play. Now get yourself over to the good works gym and work out for like 12 hours a day. Is he advocating this self-salvation here? You've got to just be unbelievably amazing. You've got to have a shooting percentage that's, you know, makes Steph Curry look ridiculous. Is that what he has in mind? He's a professional basketball player for some of you. And he's really, really good. No. As John Stott writes in his commentary on this verse, Christian righteousness far surpasses Pharisaic righteousness in kind rather than degree. It is not, shall we say, that Christians succeed in keeping some 240 commandments when the best Pharisees may only have scored 230. No. Christian righteousness is greater than Pharisaic righteousness because it is deeper, because it is a righteousness of the heart. Salvation has never been accomplished in two different ways, as some suppose. 
The law did not save people in the Old Testament, whereas grace saves people today. Casting ourselves wholly upon the mercy and grace of God has always been the sinner's only hope. But let us not domesticate this text and remove its bite. God's new covenant, kingdom of heaven kind of citizens, will demonstrate righteousness. For God, through His Spirit, as was prophesied in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36, has written the law upon their hearts. So as we turn our attention inward now, asking ourselves how a passage like this ought to affect our lives. The application is first and foremost to keep reading. Keep reading Jesus' sermon. He didn't intend for us to stop and take long breaks seven days at a time like we do. There's a natural progression here. And he continues in verses 21 through 48 to unpack much of the Old Testament, in particular the Ten Commandments. And to use that phrase, you have heard it said, but I say unto you. So if we want to apply the Sermon on the Mount, keep reading. Keep reading this afternoon. That's what it is. Application. But if we do limit our thoughts to just these four verses, first of all, flowing all around and throughout this passage is this concept that I've mentioned several times. Authority. Authority. It's what allows this text to make sense and what undergirds its validity for us today. There's simply no one else in all the universe that can utter these words but Jesus. And the reason being is that Jesus Christ has authority to claim that all the Scriptures find resolution in Him. So what does Jesus' authority look like for you personally? If Jesus can claim rightful authority over all the Bible... Can he not claim rightful authority over every bit of your life? We all know that the word authority might as well be a curse word in our culture today. Individualism rules as king and far be it from any other person to oppose even a legitimate authority over someone else. However, bowing the knee to Jesus' authority over our lives is actually the gateway to true freedom. So if he does have authority over every bit of divine speech that you have sitting in your lap right now, why is our lives so difficult to give to him in light of this kind of authority? If he's my authority, doesn't that upend my natural default way of thinking about my time my money, my career, my hobbies, my marriage, my friendships, my co-workers, my sexual desires, my body image, my speech, my sin struggles, my trials, pretty much everything else under the sun. Jesus will later say that his authority may actually lead individuals who desire to live a life of purity, to gouge out an eye if it offends them, or to cut off a hand if it continually leads them to sin in order to preserve their whole body from being thrown into hell. Graphic speech. But a perfect example of someone who does the math and concludes that Jesus knows what He's talking about. And just as the Beatitudes taught us, we'd rather mourn now and be comforted eternally then indulge in temporal comfort now, only to know eternal mourning later. Living under Jesus' authority is always a life-altering thing for those disciples who truly believe it. So would you take a few moments and just think, pray? There's another gift that was given to us, aside from the Scriptures, a comforter, the one who illumines all the scriptures and convicts our heart of sin. And that is an untapped resource 
to us as the people of God on most days. And just to think, what does Jesus' authority as Lord mean for me? What's got to go? What have I just been tracking day after day in that really is running against the grain of Jesus' authority? I'm kind of like that passage in James, the person that says, I'm going to go do such and such and go to this city and sell here and do this. And all such boasting is evil, James says, because the lordship of Jesus is just not in the equation. Perhaps the Lord would want to rearrange, reposition, reprioritize, or altogether eliminate certain things from your daily routine in order that you might better honor His Lordship over your life. I know I need that, and I intend to do some of that this afternoon. What's your disposition, though, towards the Bible? What do you think about the Bible? How do you feel about the Word of God? Have you lost an appetite to know the Scriptures? Though you may not understand how all this works, and hey, join the club, it's tough. Does knowing that Jesus fulfills the Scriptures light a fire within you, like it did in those first century Christians who were just ecstatic to start putting the connections together? A lot of the church fathers in those early first few decades and after Christ's coming came up with a lot of strange conclusions. They got a lot of things wrong, but you know what? They were, they were so excited. <laughs> they, they were missing the target that thankfully we can stay on their shoulders 2,000 years later and maybe get a few more things a little more accurate. But it was just their zeal to see that there has been a, a pivot point in redemptive history. And it lit a fire within them to figure out what is this person of Christ and how does this change and fulfill and complete and resolve so much of what we've read for thousands of years. Should we be less zealous to this end? As greater recipients than they? I think not. Perhaps availing yourself of classes such as the class that's being taught in the Bible class hour on uh, the, uh, Brian Blazowski's teaching. Uh, a wonderful way to equip us to see our Bibles through this lens so that we might be better worshipers of our Savior. In your small group Bible studies that some of you have on a regular basis, do you tend to run away from the Old Testament Scriptures because they're just kind of hard to understand? Or you kind of mutter under your breath, that's ah, not for us today anyways, and just move on? Go straight to First John or James or something that's a little bit... All right, that's, it just feels better. Or Paul, do we diminish the wonderful gift that the first 39 books of the Bible are for us? Brothers and sisters, older adults, middle-aged adults, young adults, college students, teens, children even, there is so much within our grasp. There may be certain nuances or layers of meaning that add texture, but isn't it true that it's oftentimes the most weighty things that we tend to miss, the most obvious things, the fundamentals that we tend to run away from the quickest? Let's press on to see our Savior in all the Scriptures. Ask yourself as well, are you pursuing a righteousness that's more like the scribes and the Pharisees? Or are you feeding upon the Lamb of God? Continually feeding your soul on His fulfillment of all righteousness for you. So you might obey Him, not like the scribes and Pharisees, with a pat yourself on the back, Lord, thank you, I'm not like other people, because I sure got my act together. I sure got a great moral record going. And have that self-conscious, proud heart? Or do we see Christ, the fulfillment of all righteousness for us, and now we just have a deep, heartfelt gratitude for the Gospel? Without righteousness, without holiness, not a one of us will see the Lord, as Hebrews tells us. But we better be sure it's a kind of righteousness 
that exceeds that of the hypocritical, judgmental, self-serving righteousness characterized by the Pharisees and scribes. So whether you've professed to be a disciple of Christ, whether you've made that profession decades ago even, or whether you don't profess that this morning, you look in on a message like this as an outsider, kind of checking things out, wondering, piecing a few things together you've heard before, but knowing it's, it's talk characterizing something outside, not something within. Wherever you land on that spectrum, your need's the same. You need a substitute. You need a substitute for your sin. Someone who can fulfill all righteousness and then mercifully give that to you. Credit it to your account. At each period of God's dealings with His people, salvation has always come to the one who by faith believes in God's promises and trusts Him for mercy and grace for forgiveness of sin. So would you turn today in true repentance and faith in Him? In all these things, we have a glorious Christ who has fulfilled all righteousness both in His actions and in His teaching. All history culminates in Him. Let's pray that God would allow our humble, our feeble hearts to find hope in Him and Him alone. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, we're not impressive to you. We're cleaned up. We're at church. It's so easy for us to look around and say, oh, I'm better than the person who's at home this morning or someone who never comes to church or, or look at me, I'm doing well. And Lord, that way of thinking just permeates us. We confess. We act daily, routinely, like we don't need one who can fulfill all righteousness for us. Lord, You are the grand fulfillment of the Word of God. You, Jesus, are our only hope. You have an authority unlike any other. And whether in this life or the life to come, every human will bow the knee to Your authority. And so, Father, I pray that our hearts would believe this, starting with mine. I would gain a fresh glimpse of this glorious Christ. Lord, whether it be trials, temptations, fears, issues internal or external to us, help us through the storms of life to look to You, the anchor of our souls, and the fulfillment of all things. Thank you for teaching us by your Spirit during this time. Continue, Spirit, to apply this to our hearts. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.